Amen. Well, Pastor Victor is out of town this week, and so um, he's asked me to, um, to speak in his place today. Um, I asked him when, when he told me about this if he wanted me to continue where he was in, in the book of Romans, and uh, he said that he would prefer to finish that up himself, so I don't want anyone to, to be afraid that you're not going to get any closure, okay? Uh, we're, we're not finishing Romans today. Um, I think he said he's going to try and do that perhaps on a Wednesday night coming up soon, so you got to pay attention, otherwise you'll never know how Romans ends. Okay, but uh, this morning we're going to do something a little bit different. This being the day after Christmas, I thought it would be appropriate for us to look at Scripture uh, and see what Scripture says happened immediately after what we would consider the first Christmas, in the days um, immediately after Jesus' birth. So we're going to be in the book of Luke. Um, so if you want to go ahead and open up your Bibles to the book of Luke, we're going to be in chapter 2. I'm going to start in verse 15, and we're going to go through uh, not the whole chapter, but through several verses um, and what I want us to look at uh, is how God draws people into encounters, divinely appointed encounters with his son, and how those encounters change not only us and the people who'd see Jesus, but then how those people go out and change the world around them because of a divine encounter with Christ. I think this is timely and important because as, as you can imagine, um, I like Christmas. Uh, Christmas is, is, is a good time. Um, uh, I'm one of these guys that I can, I, I'm totally fine listening to Christmas carols in like the summer and my, it drives my family crazy, you know? So they're all, like every time I put on a Christmas song, the eyes start to roll back into their heads. Um, uh, but I, I can't help it. I, I, I love it, um, especially the ones where we're worshiping and proclaiming the birth of Christ. I feel like um, that ought to be a year-long celebration. Um, uh, but Christmas affords the church a unique opportunity because it is the one time of the year when the entire world is challenged and encouraged, and even if they don't believe it, even if it's a fleeting thought in their minds, everyone at some point during the Christmas season is challenged and encouraged to at least consider the power and the love of a God who would would come down and take upon himself the weakness and frailty of human flesh so that he can draw near to his creation and create a way for his creation to draw closer to him, not just for a season, not just for a time, but for eternity. Um, and so um, it, it behooves us as believers to, to, to not be content with that but to prayerfully seek the spirit and how we carry those opportunities forward. Because when we encounter Jesus personally, he changes us and he moves in us uh, with new purpose uh, so that we can take that to others. So um, as we read through the book of Luke, at least Luke chapter 2, we're going to look at how, again, how God drew others into these personal encounters with him immediately after the birth of Christ and how they were moved to respond from that. So in verse 15, let me just set the stage a little bit. uh, the, the, the angels have just appeared to the shepherds. Uh, they've sang their beautiful chorus in the heavens. Um, and so a lot of the familiar verses that we know from the Christmas story, those things are in place. Those things are in motion. Okay. Uh, and so in verse 15, the shepherds have just received this sign. They've seen, 
the angels singing. Uh, the angel has told them where to find the Messiah. And in verse 15, it says, So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And so I want to stop right there, right away, and point out um, something really important here. I think it's important. And it's that the shepherds were not content to simply hear about Jesus. And the shepherds were not content even just to simply believe in Jesus. They had just received this, this amazing sign. They had witnessed something with their own eyes that very few human beings in human history ever have the privilege of witnessing, um, and they weren't content with that. And I think that's amazing. Because so often in our Christian lives, we pray for a sign, right? Maybe we get to this place of indecision or we get to a place of struggle or we get to a place where we just don't know um, and maybe our faith is in crisis and sometimes our prayer is, God, give me a sign. Give me a sign that you're there. Give me a sign um, of, of what you want me to do. And for the shepherds, they received a sign. They received the most amazing sign that you could ever ask for and they weren't content with that. That sign drove them to seek out Jesus. They didn't want just to have a sign. They wanted to see Jesus face to face. And sometimes I fear that for a lot of us today, um, a revelation of that magnitude, a sign of that kind of glory would be sufficient to satisfy our religious curiosity. But we know what Jesus thinks about signs, right? Because he talks about it a few times in his ministry. We know how, how, how Jesus thinks about people who ask and demand for signs. Um, let's turn over to Matthew 16 real quickly. In Matthew 16, I'm going to read verses 1 through 4. It says, Then the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and testing him, asked that he would show them a sign from heaven. Interesting, I want to point out, the shepherds had just received a sign from heaven. How else would you qualify angels singing in the heavens? The Pharisees and Sadducees tested him, um, asking he would show them a sign from heaven. He answered and said to them, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red, and in the morning it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and threatening. So he's telling them, you guys think you know how to predict the weather. Maybe they were better at that back then than we are today. But Jesus says, you know, you can look at the sky, and depending on how it looks and what color it is, then you have a pretty good idea of what's coming. So you already know how to look for signs of what's to come. He says, hypocrites, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given to them except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he left them and departed. Okay, so he says, you, can, you think you can tell the weather from the sky, but you can't, you can't see the signs of God moving amongst you in the here and now. You can't see the signs of prophecy fulfilled. You're, you're hearing the stories of people being healed. You're hearing the stories of the lame walking and, and the demonically possessed being set free. You're seeing these things with your own eyes and you're still demanding a sign. Well, you're not gonna get one. 
Uh, the only sign you're gonna get is the sign of the prophet Jonah. And Jesus explains that in one of the other gospels. He says, Jonah was in the belly of the sea creature for three days and three nights. So the son of man will be in the belly of the earth and then he will rise again. So he says, the sign you're gonna receive is when I come back from the grave, conquer death and fulfill prophecy. Okay, but by then it might be too late. So um, it's interesting. Take note of this contrast. Okay, the shepherds received a sign, but they wanted Jesus. They received a sign, and that sign filled them with a desire to see Jesus. The religious leaders saw Jesus, but they demanded a sign. Which one is God happy with, and where do we fall in that contrast? Another example, real quick before we move on, in John chapter 6, in verse 30, this is just after Jesus feeds thousands of people. Miraculously, he takes the, the fish and the loaves and he feeds way more people than, should have been, than he should have been able to. Um, and so this is the day after that in John chapter six. This crowd is following him around. Um, Jesus is trying to get somewhere to rest, but the crowd persists. And, um, and he has this conversation with them where he's challenging them to think about more than just physical provision. You know, they, they want more, more bread. Um, and Jesus says, I've got something more that I want to bring to you so in John chapter 6 and verse 30, um, uh, in this conversation, it says, Therefore they said to him, What sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Can you imagine the audacity? Can you, like, I don't know. If I, my life revolves around food way too much. <laughs> I feel like if Jesus appeared and, and fed all of us in this room with, with just, you know, a basket full of, of whatever food we could muster. And didn't just give us a little bit, but just satisfied us to the full. And the very next day, can you imagine the audacity of looking him in the face and saying, I, I need more before I'm going to believe you, you are who you say you are. Um, because they weren't really interested in Jesus as Messiah they were interested in Jesus as just their, their vending machine, their Santa Claus, their whatever you want to call it. It says, um, what sign will you perform then that we may see it and, and believe you? What work will you do? They say, our fathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread in heaven to eat. So this is what they're saying. Okay, Jesus, you fed us for an afternoon. That was cool. We appreciate that. That was pretty impressive. But if you are who you say you are, Moses fed our forefathers in the wilderness for 40 years with bread from heaven. So how do you compare to that? Right? You fed us for a day. Moses did it for 40 years. You've got more to prove, Jesus, before we're ready to believe you. Right? That's kind of what they're saying. Then Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So first of all, he says, you got it twisted, okay? It wasn't Moses who provided you with that manna. It was God, my father, God. And now he's given you the true bread of life. Yeah, uh, he used Moses to feed you for 40 years, but I'm here to feed you for eternity. I'm here to provide you bread of life that you don't have to depend on every day. It's gonna sustain you forever, okay? And so typically, when um, religious people or even non-religious people find ourselves in this position where we're demanding from God a sign, um, 
Jesus tells this parable, and I don't have the, the scripture up there, um, but he tells this parable, right, about, about, uh, about the poor man and the rich man, and they both die, and, um, and the rich man is, is in eternity, in punishment, and he looks up and he says to, you know, Father Abraham, uh, send, send Lazarus back to the land of the living to warn my family about this place. Um, and, and he's told, no, they have the prophets, they have the law, that's witness enough, that, that's enough of a testimony. And the rich man says, no, but if, if someone comes back from the dead and warns them about hell, then they'll believe. And then he's told, no, no. Even if something as crazy and as, as radical as that happened, if someone's heart is already turned away from God, if they're demanding a sign, a sign will not sustain your faith. That's kind of the point I wanna get at here. Um, for the shepherds, um, it wasn't the story of the angels singing in heaven that drove them back home, that drove their testimony that they were telling their friends about, okay? It was a story of a baby born in a manger. It was a story of a Messiah taken on human flesh, found in the, in, in, in the least desirable of places to give birth, okay? It wasn't the sign that sustained their faith it was encountering Jesus. That's what moved them. And so let's, let's keep reading back in Luke chapter two, I'm sorry. Um, and as they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger, now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had seen and heard as it was told them. Um, and so, again, uh, they, they could have been satisfied with uh, the song of the angels. They could have been satisfied with seeing that. And that would have made for a cool story to tell, okay, their friends back home. But they weren't. And again, what brought power to their testimony, what changed the lives of the people who heard them, was a face-to-face -face encounter with Jesus. It's a dangerous and shaky place for us to be in church when we allow ourselves to become dependent on signs and on miracles to sustain our faith. And I believe that God in his goodness, because he's so cool and he's so good, God still works signs and God still does those things. Um, I, I believe the gifts are still for today. Um, but every sign and every gift and every miracle is always intended to point to Jesus, not to be the end in and of itself. And when we need those constant spiritual high experiences to sustain our faith, that's a dangerous place to be in. Um, our faith is not sustained by signs. Our faith is sustained by Jesus, by encountering Jesus personally, and then allowing him to use us to bring even others to him as the shepherds did here. Um, so the shepherds, um, they weren't content with a sign. They wanted to see Jesus. I want to back up one verse to verse 19, and I want to talk about Mary. There's just really this one verse in this whole passage that we're going to be in this morning that, that focuses on Mary, and I think it's profound. And it's one that we often just kind of glaze over. There's a bit of a contrast here in verse 19, because the shepherds had this experience, and they went and they told everyone they were all excited. And then verse 19 says, but, and there's a contrast. So shepherds here, Mary here. But Mary kept all of these things and pondered them in her heart. 
I don't think it's a contrast to say one's right and one's wrong. Um, different reactions to encountering Jesus and to experiencing the presence of Jesus. It says, but Mary kept all of these things and pondered them in her heart. She can be forgiven if she wasn't jumping for joy. She just gave birth, okay? Um, but it's interesting that it says she kept all of these things. Some translations say she treasured all of these things. The Greek word is suntareo, is what you have when it says kept or treasured. And it means to preserve a thing and to keep it from being forgotten or lost. To preserve something so that it's not forgotten or lost. So what is it that Mary is taking this time and opportunity to preserve so that she doesn't forget it or lose it? Um, I've never given birth, <laughs> um, but I would imagine that giving birth is not something you easily forget the experience of, right? Mothers in the room, how many of you have forgotten what it feels like to give birth? Yeah, I see that hand. Um, no, uh, I'm gonna go out on a limb and say, you don't forget that. <laughs> um, and, um, and most mothers are very keen to remind their children, whether they're young or adult children, um, all of the joys of giving birth. My mom likes to remind me constantly whenever we disagree how you know, I weighed over 10 pounds when I was born and all of the stuff I put her through. And so that's like her trump card. She's like, okay, argument over, fine. You know, I appreciate it back then. I'm older now, but whatever. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I, I, I don't think she's like, I gotta make sure I remember what birth felt like. Um, and and I, I don't think she's just kind of basking in the moment either. Sometimes we, we read that passage and we think, oh, she's just enjoying, she's treasuring these things in her heart. She's just sort of basking in that moment. Maybe that was part of it. But I think that if anyone was going to struggle over the long haul to remember, because she's, 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 she's keeping something so it won't be forgotten, remember that. Um, if, if anyone's gonna struggle to remember who Jesus truly is, I think it's gonna be his mother. Because as a parent, sometimes I struggle to remember whose my children truly are, right? Sometimes I struggle to remember that these aren't my kids as much as I love them and as much as I want what's best for them. These are God's children, and he's given me the, the profound privilege to, to be a part of their lives, to raise them, to, to hopefully you know, point them towards Jesus. But at the end of the day, I am to present them to him. They're not here for my pleasure. They're not here for my purposes. They're here for his. And can you imagine Mary as a parent having to remember that every single day? And you might think that it's, that it, that it's, it's, it's not right to think that she would forget that. But we have record in scripture of at least one time when she forgot that right? In this very same book and chapter, if you look forward in Luke chapter 2, um, and let's go to verse, uh, let's go to verse 45, and so you guys know this story. Jesus is 12 years old at this point, and they've taken him back to Jerusalem, which was their annual tradition, and uh, it's a big family affair, and so uh, when they leave Jerusalem, somehow Jesus gets lost in the shuffle, and he's left behind. Can you imagine? And it takes them three days to figure that out, all right, and so Joseph and Mary are just scouring Jerusalem trying to find Jesus. They're in a panic, they're anxious, um, and they finally find him um, you know, teaching and discussing uh, with, the, with the religious leaders. Uh, it says um, in verse 45, so when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. 
Now so it was that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard were astonished at his understanding and answers. So when they saw him, they were amazed. Here it is. And his mother said to him, son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I, that's important that she says that. Your father and I have sought you anxiously. So, so as any caring, rational mother would, right, she's both relieved and angry and just filled with all kinds of emotions, like, how could you do this to us, you know? Um, we've been looking for you for days, and you, you, you can imagine the, the scene. But she forgets who Jesus is in this moment because she says, your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Was Jesus' father anxiously searching for him in this moment? Was Jesus' father unaware of where he was at that time? No. And so he said to them, why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? And I think Jesus uses that as an opportunity to gently remind Mary, my father knows where I am. Um, uh, and so, you know, you should know where, um, I need to be about my father's business. And so, again, uh, I don't bring that up to, to, to bring any heat on Mary. I think I, I couldn't imagine what it would be like to, to, to be tasked with raising the Messiah, you know. But I'm sure there were times where, as a loving mother, she forgot. Not because of pride, not because of, 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 of neglect, but just because of a mother's love to easily forget that this, this child is different. Um, he's not Joseph's son, you know. He's got the di- I, I have no control over his fate and his destiny. And so I think in this moment when, when Mary sees the shepherds, complete strangers coming out of nowhere, and she's had this, this, this crazy um, uh, controversial experience giving birth in, in a manger, it's, it's, it's the kind of thing that no one would picture for like a perfect delivery, much less one for a Messiah and a king, I'm sure all those things kind of come together and she says to herself, I have to remember. I have to keep these things, treasure these things, make sure I don't forget this moment because this child is different, right? And for us, I think sometimes it's easy for us to forget who Jesus is, especially around Christmas, as weird as that sounds, because the culture around us is so content to leave Jesus as a baby in a manger right? There's no threat to that. There's nothing that challenges their lifestyles about this innocent, cute little baby born in a manger surrounded by farm animals, right? Um, it's become, a, 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 rightfully so, a beautiful picture of Christmas, but it's also a kind of a non-threatening image of Jesus, and the world's forgotten who Jesus is. They're content with who he was for a season, but who is he today? Where are all the images of Jesus crucified and resurrected? Where are the images of the cultural image of, of Jesus coming back, not as an innocent baby in a manger, but as a conquering king to reclaim his creation? That's where the threat comes in, right? So sometimes we forget who Jesus is, and sometimes we forget who Jesus is um, just in our day-to-day lives. We say, Jesus, I'm, I'm totally fine with you being my savior, Okay, but when it comes to being my Lord, 
well, you can pick your times. Jesus, you, you can handle all the healing, all the forgiving, all the redemption stuff, but in my day-to-day -day life, my day-to-day -day decision making, when I make choices about my family and my career and whatever else, um, I'll call those shots, Jesus, and this, this is your lane, this is my lane, right? We forget who Jesus is. So we need to remember our encounters with Jesus. If you're a Christian this morning, if, if you call yourself a believer, it's impossible to call yourself a believer if you have not had a meaningful, life-changing, face-to-face encounter with Jesus. That has changed you. It's changed all of us. And there are times in my life where I forget, and I need to be reminded. I need to, to do what Mary does here. I need to, to do this, 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 this suntareo and treasure the truth of who Jesus is in my life and remember those things and let those things affect how I live. Let's keep reading. In verse 21. And when eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Now when the days of her purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. What that means is um, the Mosaic law said every firstborn male, every male that opens the womb, the firstborn male was to be dedicated, set apart to the Lord. Um, and then, and we'll, we'll read this in a minute, and then the parents could redeem that firstborn male by offering a sacrifice. Um, so, so it says, uh, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So we're gonna take a brief uh, sidetrack here from, from reading about how people encounter Jesus because th these few verses are in here for a reason. It, would, it wouldn't have been anything special for any devout Jewish family to follow these, these purification ceremonies. They were commanded to. Um, and we have this record here not just to show us that Joseph and Mary were devout and they were faithful, but it tells us something about Jesus even as a baby. Um, let's, let's look at where this ritual comes from. There's two places in the Old Testament I want to look at. In Genesis chapter 17, all the way back in Genesis with Abraham, God establishes this covenant in Genesis 17, 10 through 12. It says, this is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male child in your generations, he who was born in your house or brought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant. Uh, and then that command, that covenant command is kind of elaborated and, and fleshed out, so to speak, uh, in the book of Leviticus. In Leviticus chapter 12, verses 1 through 8, it says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, If a woman has conceived and born a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days. As in the days of her customary impurity, she shall be unclean. And on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. She shall then continue in the blood of her purification 33 days. She shall not touch any hallowed thing, nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purification are fulfilled. And we can stop there. Um, 
So there's this, this ceremony, this purification ceremony that God gives the Israelites way back in the Mosaic Law. Um, and when we read that today with our 21st century Western sensibilities, it's puzzling to us. It's borderline offensive to some of us because we don't understand what God's doing here. Um, a woman gives birth and she is considered unclean. And that just sounds, well, that, that, that's not fair. You know, God said to be fruitful and multiply. God wants us to have kids. Why? Why is bringing forth children, why does that make you unclean? Even more so, um, if, you, if, you, if you gave birth to, to, to a male versus a female, if you gave birth to a daughter, you were unclean even longer, right? And it's like, well, that's not fair either, God. Why, why, why are you doing that? Um, but this ceremony was important to remind the Israelites of two core truths to God's covenant with them. The circumcision, as most of us know already, was a sign of being set apart, that we are set apart and that the Israelites were set apart for a distinct purpose in God's plan, in, in, in his covenant. So God commands this act, which would be difficult to ignore or forget as you grow older, right? There's this constant sign in your life, a reminder, I'm supposed to be different. I'm supposed to be different from the world around me. God has set me apart for something else. Okay. At the same time, because that's a high and holy calling, right? And it would be very easy to, to, to let that fill you with pride and arrogance. Oh, I'm different. Oh, I'm set apart. I'm God's anointed. Okay. At the same time, God says, but you're also going to remember that every birth, no matter how joyous, no matter how filled with happiness, that, 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 no, no, no matter what kind of, you know, Fulfillment of promises, that is, every human birth brings another sinner into the world. And so this whole time of purification is a reminder to, not just to the parents, but to the, to the community, because she wasn't supposed to be able to see anyone for that time, that another sinner has been brought into the world. And if you've given birth to a daughter, it's not your fault, but you've just given birth to another sinner who's going to give birth to an, another sinner at some point, maybe, hopefully, right? Um, and so it wasn't like to, to bring disdain and judgment and, and, and this kind of like um, looking down upon the mother, but as a reminder to the community that yes, you're set apart, but you're also born in sin. And you need, to, you need to find this sobering balance between those two truths and be humbled by them. And so it's interesting then as we go back to our text in Luke chapter two, because Jesus is most certainly set apart for God right? And he's most certainly not born into sin. And so God could have easily exempted Jesus from this. He could have appeared to Mary and say, there's no sin in my son. He is set apart, but you don't have to do the whole ceremonial purification, all that stuff. Jesus should have been exempt from that part of it. Jesus and Mary both. But what does it tell us about him, about his purpose, his nature, uh, who he is, that even as a baby, he allows himself to be subject to these laws. First of all, it means that he fulfills all the laws. Um, he says that in, uh, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. He says, don't think I've come to get rid of the law. I've come to fulfill it. I'm here to fulfill every law because, because you guys can't. So I'm going to do it for you. I'm going to fulfill the law for you because you're incapable of doing it yourself. So first of all, Jesus comes to fulfill the law. But secondly, uh, in... If we turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we have a precursor of what Paul tells us in this passage in 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, 
It says, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We know that Jesus on the cross becomes sin for us. He becomes the focal point of God's judgment and wrath in our place. And even as a baby, we have these things that are pointing to his purpose, where he identifies and associates with the sinner. He didn't have to go through that purification ceremony. He was sinless, but he's willing to associate with sinners because he knows that ultimately he will become sin for us. So again, kind of a side trail from our theme of people encountering Jesus, but nevertheless, an important thing to remember about Jesus in his birth and in the days that followed. So in verse 25, we're going to read about this man, Simeon. It says, And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. Pay attention how many times Simeon's encounter with Jesus is associated with the work of the Holy Spirit. It says, The Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So he came by the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in, brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. So Simeon encounters Jesus and immediately he begins to prophesy. Immediately he begins to praise and worship God. And he brings this profound truth out about the, about the work of Jesus. He says he's going to uh, be a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles. That was woven in Old Testament prophecy, but it was one that the Jews conveniently likely forget a lot. Okay, He says this isn't just for the Jews. He's going to be a light to the Gentiles and the glory of Israel. Um, and his encounter with Jesus starts with the Holy Spirit. It says the Holy Spirit was upon him. In verse 25. Now, this phrase, the Holy Spirit being upon a person, we see that all throughout Scripture, but it's interesting that anytime Scripture says the Holy Spirit comes upon someone after Pentecost, after the book of Acts, right, it, it's referring to when the Spirit comes and dwells permanently with a believer. And there's usually some kind of outward sign um, or, or um, visible anointing of the Spirit that takes place, right? Prior to Pentecost in the Old Testament, we still have times when the Holy Spirit comes upon a person, but it's always for a specific purpose. It's never permanent or never intended to be permanent. Scripture says the Spirit came upon Samson, right? And Samson starts like, you know, doing all these crazy things and killing people. Um, the Spirit comes upon King Saul, um, and even King Saul, who ended up being an abject failure as king, has these moments where the Spirit comes upon him and he begins to prophesy and he begins to do the work of God. So in the, uh, under the old covenant, this coming upon of the Holy Spirit was still happening, although not permanent. But then we have examples like Abraham and Moses, right? Um, 
who their interactions with God, their conversations with God seem to be on an ongoing basis. So what does that tell us about Simeon? Whatever, however you interpret the coming upon of the Holy Spirit, we can be sure that the Spirit was present with Simeon. And we can be sure that not only was the Holy Spirit present with Simeon, but there was an ongoing open line of communication between Simeon and the Holy Spirit. And so when we are in the presence of the Spirit and we are communicating daily with the Spirit and the Spirit moves us and leads us into obedience and into encounters with the Lord, okay? If we are going to, if we're gonna take the truth and the message of Christmas beyond December, we can only do so in the power of the Holy Spirit. We can only do so by being in the presence of the Holy Spirit, by allowing him to speak to us, by allowing him to move us. And as Simeon does here, um, it results in, in this prophetic proclamation, right? So the question there is, how has the Holy Spirit been leading us? How has the Holy Spirit been leading you this season to encounter Jesus? Not just to encounter Jesus, but then to proclaim him to all that you encounter after that. Finally, we come to Anna, and she has such a testimony. I love that Luke preserves her story here because uh, it's mind-blowing. It says, now there was one, Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher. She was of a great age, is what the New King James says, um, very sensitive. She, she wasn't old. She was great. We need to start adopting that language. You know, we have the younger and the greater right, not the younger and the older. She was of a great age and had lived with a husband seven years from her virginity, and this woman was a widow of about 84 years who did not depart from the temple but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. So that means, if we're doing our math right, okay, that she was married for seven years, um, and, uh, and then her husband dies, and she becomes a widow, and then she was widowed for 84 years, so that's 91 years, okay, since her marriage, um, and, and we know that women uh, in this culture usually married young, so she was probably a teenager when, when she got married. But even then, uh, she's, she's over 100 years old <laughs> at this point, over 100 years old, and for 84, if, if Scripture is to be believed, which it should be, for 84 years, it says, she did not depart from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. Um, this term for serving is latruo, and it doesn't just mean to serve, it means to worship, it means to perform some of the sacred services or to offer gifts and worship to God. So she dedicates her life, and as a prophetess, that's what Luke says, she says that she was a prophetess. As a prophetess, we know that she would have been set apart by God for, um, for those things, to dedicate her life to serving in the temple, worshiping God, praying and fasting. Here's the thing, though, all of us are called to those same things, whether we're a prophet, prophetess or not, right? God's called all of us to serving, to worship, to praying, and to fasting. And sometimes when we, when we forget who Jesus is, when we lose that communication with the Holy Spirit, sometimes I think we need to go back and ask ourselves, are we doing the things that God's called us to do? 
Are we worshiping? Are we serving? Are we praying? Are we fasting? It's interesting in our, in our current Christian culture, we find prayer a lot easier than fasting, don't we? Am I the only one? I like to eat. Um, but in the book of Matthew, when Jesus talks about praying and fasting, you guys know this, right? In Matthew chapter six, um, he doesn't talk about if you feel called to it. He doesn't say if this is your gift, if, if, uh, if God's laid it on your heart, he says when, right? In Matthew chapter six, uh, starting in verse six, he says, but you, when you pray, go into your room and when you, and when you have shut your door, pray to your father who is in the secret place and your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And then down to verse 16, the same chapter, moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces and they appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward, but you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your father who is in the secret place and your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Um, there's this, this story, and I, again, I don't have the, 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 the scripture up on the slide, where the, the disciples, um, as they've been training with Jesus, as, as he's been preparing them, they've, they've gotten to see so many cool things. They've seen healings. They've been a part of healings. Jesus uses them to extend those healings. But there's this moment when Jesus goes up on the mountain um, and he leaves them behind. And when he comes back, they are struggling with this demonically possessed person. And they're saying, Jesus, we, we, we can't cast the demon out. We've done this before, but we can't cast this one out. And, you know, Jesus being Jesus, he kind of steps in. He does what Jesus does. And uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit and obedience to the Father, he, he exercises this, this, this demon. And the disciples ask him, why couldn't we do it? And Jesus says, sometimes this, these kind only go out by prayer and fasting. And it makes me wonder, because we're so caught up in our lives, we're so caught up in some of the things that, that we, 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 we get in a rush and we just kind of go, go, go. It makes me wonder how much power, how much spiritual power God has for us that we deny ourselves because we've rejected and ignored some of these things. Jesus doesn't say, if you fast, he says, when, and this is for me, okay, i I'm not up here saying I got this figured out. Believe me, I, for a lot of reasons, I should fast more. But um, uh, God constantly brings me back to this conviction. You know, Jonathan, you're, you're seeking, you're longing, you, you, you want to know my will. How, how badly, really, do you want that? Um, and so for, for Anna, she spends 84 years, day in, day out, serving, worshiping, praying, fasting, and she gets to see Jesus. And it says, and coming in that instant. So it's like Simeon leaves this way. They turn around and there's Anna coming in that instant. Um, uh, in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. Again, you should see a common theme here. You encounter Jesus, you praise God, and then you go and you tell others about your encounter with Jesus. Right? We see that same thing happening. What if... As a body of believers, we said, you know what, 84 years is a long time. I don't know if we can commit to that. 
What if just a fraction of that time we said, we're going to dedicate ourselves to prayer and fasting? Just, okay, so, so 84 years might be too long. Lord, okay, we'll do it for a year. We'll do it for six months. We'll do it for one month. As a body of believers praying and fasting, how much would God use that to work? How, how would God use that, that obedience on our part bring about his glory and his power in our church and in the community around us, right? Um, it's all about encountering Jesus. So the shepherds didn't settle for a sign. They sought the Savior, and then they made him widely known. Mary treasured and protected the truths of Jesus in her heart, and she did her best to remember who Jesus is, not who she may have wanted him to be. Simeon, Simeon cultivated a dependence on the leading and the presence of the Holy Spirit in his life. And obedience to that presence and obedience to that communication is what led him to encountering Jesus. And Anna dedicates her entire life to pursuing the Lord, serving the Lord, worshiping the Lord, praying, fasting, all these people encounter Jesus in meaningful ways. They are forever changed, and then they take Jesus with them and change the world around them. The worship team can come up. Encountering Jesus must change us. If encountering Jesus hasn't changed us, I, I would struggle to say we've truly encountered the resurrected Savior. We may have encountered religion. We may have re encountered church. You can encounter religion and church and not be changed. You cannot come face to face with the Messiah and be unchanged. And we must be changed. Um, and it demands a response, not just in the moment, not just for a season, but for a lifetime. In his earthly ministry as an adult, um, whenever people would encounter Jesus, they would either leave filled with hope and filled with joy and filled with healing, or they would leave his presence angry and offended, um, their lifestyles threatened by this in their minds by a religious heretic. Whichever your response was, you couldn't ignore Jesus. Pilate and the Romans tried, right? Pilate uh, was trying Jesus, and he says, oh, I, I don't want to crucify him, but I also don't want to set him free because that won't look good. So Pilate, try, he tries to wash his hands. He tries to remain neutral, but you cannot remain neutral about Jesus. The religious leaders try to fit Jesus into their traditions, into their comfort zones, and Jesus says, you need to find new wineskins for this new wine. You're trying to fit me into your old wineskins. It's not gonna work. You can't compromise on your encounter with Jesus. He's going to change you. He's going to change you for his pleasure and for his glory, for his purposes, not for our comfort zones. Have we encountered Jesus? It shouldn't surprise us that even as a newborn child, Jesus forever changed those who encountered him. So we too must be changed. The world needs Jesus beyond December, beyond Christmas, and he's empowered and called us to do it. Let's pray. Lord, there's so much, there's so much about your son that you have, you have for us.
God, I pray, I pray first of all, before anything else, I pray that, that we truly will have had an encounter, a face-to-face, a real encounter with Jesus. That if there's anyone watching uh, online or here in our presence who, who has only encountered uh, uh, religion, who has only encountered some, some fake version of, of who your son is, Father, I pray you would change that. I pray you would draw hearts and you would draw thoughts and that you would bring um, conviction and you would bring um, a glorious new transformation. And for those of us who you have met, who you have called, Father, again, I pray that we wouldn't forget who Jesus is, that we wouldn't leave Jesus in the manger, that we wouldn't leave him in, in our churches, we wouldn't leave him in the comfort of our homes, that we would take him with us wherever we go, that as we have encountered him or that others would encounter him through us. Father, I pray this year, as we go into another, another season, Lord, that we would, um, would carry your, your truth your promises, your glory, and your presence wherever we go. For your glory and your kingdom, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.